Good evening, everyone. General Hudson, it's a privilege to be invited to present a Wings and Things lecture. Dr. Underwood, thank you for the very generous introduction. Welcome to all of you. I'm pleased that you've come out this evening on such a cold, wintry night. A special thanks to my neighbors from Bethany Village who have made the journey to join us. This evening, we'll take a look at the history of expanding the envelope. Expanding the envelope is a term that has entered our vocabulary to designate extraordinary efforts. It's a term derived from pilots of the right stuff and the airplanes that they flew. Airplanes that represented a unique generation of aircraft designers and the products that they gave to those pilots. These are the airplanes that expanded the envelope, that expanded our boundaries of flight, that expanded the, the flight envelope. These are the tangible instruments of research and development. In, this, in our research and development gallery, we have a magnificent collection, unparalleled in any other museum in the world. So this evening, we're going to take a look at this gallery. We'll take a journey through the gallery and talk about some of the highlights. The enterprise of aviation is a source of never-ending stories, stories of great accomplishment, stories of heroism, sometimes stories of tragedy. There's great wisdom here, wisdom often learned the hard way. We've been very privileged in this Wings and Things series to hear from many of the individuals who made it happen. And as, as I've sat among you and have enjoyed uh, these presentations, I've been impressed with your knowledge, your fascination with the history of flight, your understanding of the history of Air Force. You're indeed a very tough audience, and that's kind of intimidating to anyone who stands here at, at this podium. So that raises the question, how should we organize our journey through the research and development gallery? I'm going to suggest that we do the following, that we look at the context of some of these aircraft, what did they do, and what were the consequences of it? Now, the term research and development goes back uh, to the very beginning of flight. It wasn't always called R&D, but from the very earliest days of flight, there was a continuous effort to improve the performance of, of the airplane. Never more important than in the Great War. A century ago, the first large-scale deployment of aircraft for military purposes. And in the skies over Europe, pilots quickly learned that there was a premium for aircraft performance and designers were implored to quickly develop the latest model and get them into combat aircraft with better performance, better armament, that victory in the skies depended on this ever-advancing stream of knowledge. Unfortunately, here in America, we were slow to learn that lesson. But after the armistice of 1918, the national leadership established two very important institutions for research and development. One was a civilian agency, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. They were charged with doing basic research into the aeronautical sciences. 
In particular, they were, uh, took the initiative to learn how to reduce the drag of an airplane in order that it might go faster. A second institution is more familiar to us. Here in Dayton, Ohio, at the Army's McCook Field, they established the Engineering Division. The purpose of the Engineering Division was to create better aircraft, lighter, uh, lighter airframe structures, more powerful engines, better armament. This was going to be the key to the superiority of uh, the nation's Air Force. And in doing this research and development work at McCook Field, they set up a pattern that would be familiar to us and on exhibit even today in the R&D gallery. And that would involve doing prototypes, involve making experimental aircraft, and in using test beds. A good example of a test bed project from this time period would have been the work for the turbo supercharger. And in this, the uh, turbo supercharger is this piece of equipment right up here on top of the engine. Uh, it would enable aircraft to fly to high altitudes, continue uh, engine output at a very high altitudes, an obvious benefit for them for a military aircraft. And in this photograph, we see the, the four principles representing organizations that are responsible even today for conducting research and development. On the left is the test pilot, John McCready. Uh, next to him, the dapper gentleman is from the contractor, General Electric. This is Dr. Sanford Moss, uh, the inventor of the turbo supercharger. Next to him in uniform, representing the office of the sponsoring agency, would be Major George Hallett. He's chief of power plant. Next to him, the civilian technique, uh, George Berger, uh, Adolf Berger, representing you know, the generations of men and women who worked at McCook Field and Wright Field. The aircraft itself is a test bed, a variant of the standard aircraft, the uh, Packard uh, Lusac Lepere 11, and we have an unmodified version of that in the R&D gallery. Then there were experimental airplanes. In the 1920s, air races were popular, and the military supported these, and it prompted the design of aircraft intended to go very fast. We can think of these as the early X airplanes. A good example is the Verville Sperry R3, designed by Alfred Verville of the Engineering Division. Uh, the aircraft that you see in the photograph would be a, a very unusual airplane for its time. It has just a single wing. It's a monoplane at a time when all other aircraft were biplanes. Furthermore, it has the very novel feature of a retractable landing gear. That enabled the aircraft to win the 1924 Pulitzer Trophy race at a speed well over 200 miles an hour, double that of the pursued airplanes of the Great War just a few years earlier. And then there would be prototypes. In this case, in the transition from airframe manufacturing of wood and fabric into all metal, aluminum airframes, uh, the Air Corps invited companies to submit a design for a new twin-engine bomber. And we have two examples here, one from the Boeing Company, one from the Glen L. Martin Company. The engineering division evaluated these and decided that the Martin entry was the more promising. So they began to work with the Martin design team to transform this prototype into an operational aircraft, and that would be the B-10, the first of a new generation of bombers, a generation that would uh, 
precede the, the vast armadas of World War II. And once again, we have a restored B-10 on exhibit in the early years gallery. 1927, the engineering division began to move from McCook Field to Wright Field, uh, here where we are this evening. And uh, they continued to do projects even through the Depression years when funding was very limited. One of the outstanding projects of the 1930s was the XC-35, the world's first pressurized aircraft. It would represent new innovations in structural design. The fuselage is an all-pressurized vessel. Uh, it, it includes application of aeromedical technology for crew performance in such an environment. And it includes the mechanism developed by the power plant uh, branch for pressurizing the aircraft. The application of this the new technology would follow soon in the most important bomber of World War II, the B-29, with its um, pressurized crew compartments, enabling the crews to sustain their effectiveness even on very long-distance missions. As the war was beginning to uh, come to an end, victory was in sight. General Hap Arnold, chief of the Air Force, recognized the importance of technology to victory, and he also recognized the importance uh, of technology to the post-war Air Force. There were many new developments, many new possibilities, but what to select and where to go. To advise him on this, he asked his good friend, Dr. Theodore von Karman, distinguished professor of aeronautics, uh, to help him devise a plan. Dr. von Karman assembled a team that became known as the Scientific Advisory Group. In their assembled work over the next few months, they provided General Arnold with a, a seminal report toward New Horizons. And then this, they laid out the projects that would be necessary in the post-war Air Force and how to, uh, how to get there. And uh, many of the aircraft we have in the R&D gallery are a consequence of this report. It would guide R&D for the next several decades. Now, this is also the time of the Cold War the bipolar confrontation between the West and the Soviet Union. It's us versus them. And it meant preparation for nuclear warfare, nuclear weapons, and strategic delivery systems. That responsibility was assigned to the Strategic Air Command, SAC. And in its day, there's no question that SAC was the most powerful military organization in the world. The man most associated with this time period would be General Curtis LeMay. General LeMay had come of age with the airplane and with the Air Force. He was a powerful advocate for air power and an outspoken in his belief that the U.S. Air Force offered the nation the most effective deterrent against the Soviet threat. General LeMay and his colleagues had commanded the strategic bombing campaigns of World War II. They had ultimate confidence in the piloted bomber. They knew how to fly them, knew how to command them, uh, knew all about the operations necessary uh, to provide effective deterrence. And they would be suspicious of any proposed alternative, and not only suspicious, but indeed outright hostility uh, to any new ideas. Nevertheless, if you had been a senior military commander or a civilian executive in this time period, uh, the, the world of future strategic systems would have looked something like this. These would have been your options. 
there would have been the possibility of an intercontinental cruise missile. Seemed like a logical extension of technology, but in the end, problems of navigation, problems of reliability uh, would doom this as a viable alternative. And then there would be ballistic missiles, rockets with a nuclear warhead on top. It seemed like an outlandish idea. There were many skeptics, many doubters. It was going to require much new technology, new manufacturing, new operational techniques. The idea of sending a warhead thousands of miles to hit with accuracy uh, to many individuals just seemed a preposterous idea. Third was the possibility of a nuclear-powered airplane. In the 1950s, whatever the question, nuclear sometime uh, often seemed to be part of the answer. The proponents of nuclear technology promised electricity too cheap to measure, automobiles with reactors instead of gas tanks, and airplanes that could fly forever. So the Air Force was very interested in this possibility for obvious reasons. And then lastly, there was the extrapolation of high-speed jet-powered flight uh, for a new bomber, what would ultimately be the B-70. With the deployment of the nation's first generation of ballistic missiles, the Atlas and the Titan, uh, defense experts began to talk of push-button warfare. Conflicts of the future would be characterized by missiles and by automated systems. The day of the piloted aircraft was gone. Uh, the, the bomber, the big powerful bomber, was going to disappear, disappear into the sunset as suggested by this photograph. But the proponents of the piloted bomber were not ready to concede. And they looked, first of all, to nuclear power as a possible answer. They could envision a fleet of nuclear-powered bombers patrolling the perimeter of the Soviet Union, armed with nuclear weapons, ready to strike at a moment's notice, not unlike today's ballistic missile submarines. So in the early 1950s, began to award contracts for further studies for further technology development. There were two contracts awarded to the engine companies, Pratt & Whitney and General Electric, for them to develop jet engines powered by nuclear reactors. The General Electric team was at, um, located at Evendale, just down the road from us, and with their direct air cycle, they would make the, the most substantial progress. Now, in this, they would uh, connect a nuclear reactor to the jet engines that would, be, that would replace the combustion section, so air from the compressor would be sent through the reactor, heated and sent back through the turbine and out through the tailpipe. The GE team made remarkable progress, and by 1955, were ready to embark on some full-scale testing. They constructed these proof-of-concept units located at the uh, National Reactor Testing Station in Idaho. These are the decommissioned units available for visitors to inspect. The units themselves were noted, uh, known as heat transfer reactor experiments, and you can see... Here, these are jet engines powered by a nuclear reactor. You can see down here at the bottom uh, the tailpipes of uh, the two jet engines. These were successful. In 1956, they ran on nuclear power and did indeed produce thrust. However, you can also infer from the complexity of this, the size of it, the difficulty of putting all of this into an airplane. A companion program 
would be uh, the use of the Big B-36 uh, to measure radiation effects. Now, radiation is, uh, effects are important. How do you, you know, what would be the effect on a flight crew on an airplane? To begin to get answers to that, uh, they had a contract with Convair to, to modify one of their B-36s. They put a, a fairly substantial reactor in the, F, in the aft bomb bay, uh, modified the crew station, modified it by enclosing the crew in a huge, in a huge, uh, come on here. There we go. This huge lead-lined capsule weighed 11 tons. So the uh, crew members uh, were encased in that. Uh, the airplane was flown from its base at Fort Worth out across West Texas and New Mexico. Uh, the, once airborne, the reactor would be brought up to power. Now, it was not connected to the propulsion unit. The only purpose here was to measure the radiation effects on aircraft systems, very importantly, on the crew. So they made several flights from 1955 to 1957. But by that time, it was becoming apparent that the problems of developing nuclear propulsion in spite of the progress, were, were extremely daunting, not very promising. Even though every year seemed to bring some development, it seemed to bring more questions with it at the same time. So by 1961, uh, the leadership decided that nuclear power was not in the future and terminated the program. And that left our fourth option, uh, extrapolating technology for jet propulsion high-speed aerodynamics. Now, at this time, some of the designs were rather fanciful, um, but the proponents of the piloted airplane were not ready to concede uh, to the age of push-button warfare. Indeed, uh, this is a time in which the B-52 is just becoming operational. We're in early years of B-52 production, but the leadership in the Air Force is not willing to stand by and just see what happens. They wanted to move on with the next with the next production possibility. Now, if you had been a member of the design team in 1955, working under the umbrella program of Weapons System 110, uh, the most important parameter for your concern would have been range. How far could the aircraft fly? Could it fly from bases in the U.S. to targets in the Soviet Union and return? A bomber that can't reach the target is not of much value. So. The consideration, the designs for getting there would have been all important. Uh, the speed of the aircraft would have been very secondary. Uh, it was traded off. There were lots of variations. Indeed, great uncertainty into what kind of speed the airplane should have. By 1958, the Air Force was ready to award a development contract. They selected the North American Company, which had proposed an aircraft very similar to the ultimate uh, B-70 B that we are familiar with. It was named Valkyrie, uh, had a range of over 7,000, supposedly would have a range over 7,000 miles. Very importantly, would have a cruise speed of Mach 3, 2,000 miles an hour. Now, where did this value of Mach 3 come from? Well, the, uh, it's a bit of a mystery looking back at the uh, development work. Uh, it, it's, it's a little, a little uncertain, but you know, North American was undertaking an enormous challenge to build an aircraft that could fly this fast. 
there had never been uh, an air-breathing airplane that had flown at Mach 3. So how were they going to do this? How were they going to do this in a very short period of time? You'll notice that at, at contract award, they were anticipating operational service by 1964 uh, the B, to replace the B-52. The B-52 was still relatively new. So this is a very ambitious program. Reflect on the state of the art in 1958, the aerodynamic state of the art for supersonic flight. What did we really know? Well, we had built a series of fighters known as the Century Series, which had modest supersonic performance, uh, could fly above Mach 1 for a few minutes, but they have to fly an afterburner, which uh, you know, consumes fuel at a very high rate. Uh, they have a limited quantity of fuel on board. So our experience with supersonic flight is really very limited. The most ambitious of those programs would have been the B-58, an airplane uh, still in the development phase, just emerging into the early, early days of, of flight test. The idea of an airplane flying Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, uh, for maybe an hour or so at the most. So there's very little for the North American team to go on. Nevertheless, if you'd been around the headquarters of North American Aviation at the time, you would have noticed great optimism, great confidence. The, the firm, led by the founder, Dutch Kindleberger, and his right-hand man, the chief engineer, Lee Atwood, uh, together had produced a wonderful series of airplanes, airplanes that are famous today for their military service. For their program manager, they selected an up-and-coming manager, Harrison Storms, uh, to direct the program. And they had every confidence in the world that they were going to be able to meet the contract requirements. Sure, no one had ever done anything like this before, but that was a way of life for them. They were extraordinarily optimistic. So you're on the design team. The chief comes around to you and says, what's this airplane going to look like? Well, you really have very little to go on. You knew a few elementary rules. You knew that for good supersonic speed, needed to have a slender profile, good length to diameter ratio. Uh, you knew that you could select for a wing, a delta wing. Uh, the, the bomber doesn't need very much maneuverability, not very agile. So you can use a tailless delta configuration. Delta wing has good supersonic characteristics, good structural and weight characteristics. So that's, that's a good choice. How big to make the wing? Well, uh, the size of the wing determines uh, the, the distance needed for takeoff. The B-70 is intended to operate from standard SAC bases, 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet of runway. So if you can get this airplane off in 8,000 feet, that would be about right. So you size the wing for liftoff rotation at 8,000 feet. Well, this is all still pretty primitive. It says nothing at all about the efficiency of the airplane. Now, this bomber is supposed to fly thousands of miles, so it needs to have a very efficient aerodynamic shape. How to get that? Well, the team turned to something called the compression lift. This was based upon a report from NACA theoreticians at Ames, and it uh, described a vehicle such as you see at the top, a flat top vehicle with a half cone underneath and these deflected wingtips. This is something that's going to become a signature of the B-70. So adapting this theory, which is based upon an idea an aerodynamic principle of momentum exchange, 
uh, a, a rather dubious proposition, but we're well before the days of big computers. Uh, this is still the days of slide rules and, and wind tunnels. So they, you know, any port in a storm will adopt this and configure the B-70 accordingly. So one of the features then would be the deflected wingtips at high speed down to 65 degrees. And then representing the half cone, you know, they would, uh, the propulsion installation package underneath would be this wedge-shaped uh, inlet uh, engine installation package. And the idea was that somehow all of this would come together and produce a good efficient uh, aerodynamic shape, a good lift to drag ratio. Now the real difficulty in designing a very high speed airplane is the requirement to do three airplanes in one. If all you had to do was design for maximum speed, 2,000 miles an hour, that would be pretty challenging, but could be done. The complexity comes from the fact that the airplane has to take off and land on an ordinary runway, has to be flown at subsonic speeds, pilot has to make an approach to a runway just as any other aircraft would do. So you have to, it has to be good at subsonic speeds. It also has to be good at transonic speeds, going through the sound barrier, a region in where the pressure distributions all begin to change, where control becomes difficult, a high drag region. So the configuration, as it uh, was finally settled, would feature uh, this canard up here on the forward fuselage. The only purpose of that canard is to help the airplane take off. You'll notice at uh, takeoff that the uh, trailing edge ele elevator is deflected down 20 degrees. Uh, the canard is not necessary for high-speed flight. It's there to help uh, the low-speed configuration. So the contract for development was awarded in 1958, but uh, progress in ballistic missiles was very rapid. ICBM deployment was coming along, and the intelligence people were telling the Air Force that the Soviet Union was beginning to deploy a very lethal air defense system, uh, radar-guided missiles that could hit uh, an object even 2,000 miles an hour and 70,000 feet. And with that, the Air Force began to lose its enthusiasm for the B-70. Operations at one point that had these uh, canards attached to the inlet, canards that were known as chin fins. Finally then, there's the category of Visto vertical, or short takeoff and landing. The uh, designing, designing for Visto challenges uh, the aircraft designer in, in many ways and uh, creates many unorthodox solutions, some very interesting ideas. Now, the basic requirement for vertical takeoff and landing is that the thrust has to be greater than the weight. This is not easy to do. Uh, it requires an oversized power plant. The engine has to be made much bigger, much more powerful than would otherwise be necessary. So why do you want to go to all of this trouble? Well, this takes us back to the days of the Cold War. And we had extensive bases in Europe, lots of aircraft deployed on those air bases, and commanders worried about a preemptive attack from the Soviet Union, an attack that might destroy the runways, uh, take out many of the aircraft, uh, be left with no operational capability. So they were interested in the possibility of an aircraft that did not need a runway, and furthermore, could be mobile. So they, and 
times of high alert it could be dispersed. So one of those ideas is shown here with the Orion X-13. Now, in this aircraft, it's simplicity itself. You simply point the vehicle straight up, uh, the thrust goes uh, up, uh, the weight goes down, and at uh, full power, it can lift off from this mobile platform. It can take off, fly around, come back, recover in the same manner, recover uh, by the hook on the nose, catching that cable stretched across the top. Uh, once it's been secured, then the landing platform could be lowered, a truck attached, and driven away. The most spectacular demonstration of this occurred in the summer of 1997. The Air Force took this rig around to the Pentagon, parked it uh, on the riverside there, erected the platform. The pilot, Pete Gerard, climbed in, took off, uh, transitioned into horizontal flight, uh, flew around for a while, transitioned back into the vertical, recovered on the platform, uh, lowered it, uh, hooked up the truck, and drove away. A very impressive demonstration. It's a very successful program. But in the end, the Air Force decided that the uh, cost was not, the benefit was not worth the cost. They would have another opportunity a few years later with this aircraft, a Hawker Siddeley AV-6 Kestrel. Now, this may look like a Harrier, but it's the predecessor of the Harrier. It's a somewhat smaller aircraft. Our number two is one of six that participated in an important tri-service evaluation in the mid-60s. Now, this is a completely new kind of aircraft. It's a Visto combat aircraft. Of course, the Royal Air Force was very interested in this. It's a product of, of Great Britain, uh, but they were unsure how to use it, unsure how it was going to all work out. And furthermore, of course, the, the British government was interested in having other nations adopt it and buy the aircraft. So they invited the West German Air Force and the U.S. Air Force to participate in an experimental tripartite squadron. Nine of these Kestrels, uh, they flew from an RAF base uh, north of London, up by the North Sea, and for several months in 1964 into 1965, uh, they flew routine operational missions uh, to demonstrate the uh, suitability of the Kestrel. During this time period, the airplane was marked in a rather unorthodox set of insignia that combined the services of all three nations. It would be interesting to see ours repainted with this, uh, with this insignia. Now, the Kestrel is an outgrowth of the first concept aircraft from the Hawker Company, the Hawker P-1127. The Hawker Company is an old established firm in Great Britain, been building aircraft for many, many decades. In fact, uh, in our early years gallery, the Hurricane is a product of the Hawker Company. In the late 1950s, they became intrigued with the idea of creating a vertical lift airplane, and that is shown in that uh, lower left-hand photograph, the P-1127. Now, this is a vectored thrust design in which the nozzles are rotated. There would be four nozzles, two on each side, so that gives it a four-poster lifting capability, which also has the benefit of some stability. Uh, the uh, experiments with this airplane were successful, and Hawker was encouraged to move on then with the development of the Kestrel and later with the, with the uh, Harrier. Now, the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, 
has fingerprints all over this airplane, very importantly in the development of the engine. This goes back to the mid-1950s uh, uh, at a time when the Air Force maintained an office in Paris known as the Mutual Weapons Development Agency. This agency was authorized to fund the aerospace companies of our NATO allies. You know, it's a hard financial times. They're struggling. Uh, it was in the interest of America that these companies be maintained in business. So we were willing to send small sums of money to keep them going. So one day in 1956, a, term from, uh, uh, a, a team from the Bristol Siddeley Engine Company of Great Britain showed up to meet with a Colonel Chapman to show him an idea for a vectored thrust airplane. That was based on something kind of strange. That a big shaft engine uh, driving four compressors that had uh, vectoring nozzles, movable nozzles that could go from the vertical to the horizontal. We don't know what Colonel Chapman's reaction was, but we do know that he began to send small sums of money to Bristol Siddeley to help them continue the development of this concept. Eventually, they moved to a somewhat more orthodox adaptation of a jet engine, which would become known as the Pegasus. And the Pegasus would have these four rotating nozzles that would uh, be vectored uh, to help the aircraft lift off for the vertical. As a side note, uh, Bristol Siddeley was eventually absorbed by the Rolls-Royce company, so we generally know the Pegasus by its Rolls-Royce uh, designation. Don't know how much money the U.S. Air Force eventually put into that. Some sources uh, cite a great deal of money, but we can definitely say the fingerprints of the U.S. Air Force are on this very extraordinary airplane. Well, after the uh, success of that tripartite squadron, uh, the uh, America was persuaded, the Department of Defense was persuaded to bring six of those Kestrels back to America for flight evaluation. They were based at uh, the Navy's Patuxent River facility and test pilots from all four services uh, flew the airplane. Uh, the U.S. Air Force once again declined to uh, consider this for operational service for production, but of course the Marines were very taken with the idea I joined up with uh, McDonnell Douglas, uh, who uh, entered into an agreement with the British Aerospace to develop the advanced Harrier, the Harrier II, which served the Marines for many years. Well, those are ideas for a, a fighter airplane, a combat aircraft. What about uh, a small transport airplane, something that might replace a heavy lift helicopter? The Air Force in the mid-60s awarded a development contract for a prototype uh, to the Vought Company for the airplane that you see here, a small tactical transport. It would employ a novel idea, that of a tilt wing. Uh, the engines attached to the wings then could be rotated when the whole wing assembly was moved to the vertical. And then, as shown in this um, time sequence illustration, the aircraft could take off vertically and then transition to horizontal flight. The Air Force awarded a development contract for four uh, flight articles, excuse me, five flight articles. Uh, three of those were, uh, in the, and they conducted extensive evaluation, a sum total of 488 flights. Uh, during, those, uh, during that workout, uh, three of the aircraft were heavily damaged in landing accidents 
One aircraft was destroyed in a fatal accident, and the, the uh, remaining aircraft was then transferred to NASA in 1966. They flew it for several years, and then it was transferred here to the museum in 1970. So the 142 showed real promise, uh, you know, extensive uh, military evaluation, and the Air Force was moved to ask Vought for uh, an improved version, a B model, that would uh, incorporate lessons learned and add more capability. And at that time, uh, you know, artist concepts uh, illustrated the possible use of the tilt-wing aircraft as, as shown here. Now, I would ask you at this point, in your imagination, to see not the tilt-wing 142, but the tilt-rotor V-22 Osprey. And uh, take note uh, that this is exactly what the V-22 is intended to do. Where does that V-22 come from? Well, there's another aircraft uh, in the R&D gallery that's important to this story, and that's Bell Helicopters XV-3, an experimental tilt-rotor aircraft. This is strictly a research aircraft drawing on Bell's experience as a helicopter manufacturer. Uh, they built the airplane, uh, flew it for a number of years, evaluated by military company pilots and NASA as well. Based upon the success of this, Bell persuaded NASA to join them in the development of another experimental tilt-rotor aircraft, the XV-15. Now in this, the, the rotors are tilted by moving the entire power plant package, which is now attached to the wingtips. This is unlike the XV-3, which had the power uh, in the fuselage, and then the rotors were shaft-driven. So now you've got all of this weight at a single pivot point out on the wingtip. You're bringing all of the fuel, the controls, the hydraulics out through that. And I suggest, you know, in your imagination, uh, the forces induced as this rotor starts to move from uh, the vertical to the horizontal, all the gyroscopic forces involved. This is going to be a really difficult design problem. Nevertheless, the vehicle was a success, flew for several years, and prompted then Boeing, excuse me, Bell uh, to enter into an agreement with Boeing to persuade the Navy to sponsor the, the development of an operational aircraft, which would become the B-22 Osprey. The Navy was acting as the agent for the Marine Corps, which had the primary interest, and then the Air Force decided to join for a, uh, a special operations variant. Now, this is, this is a really difficult design, this uh, whole business of attaching the power plants to the outer wingtips, uh, and it would require a long and arduous development program. First flight of the V-22 was 1989, and it would take 18 more years before it reached operational status in 2007. About a year ago, uh, we had a V-22 uh, join our museum's collection, CV-22. Uh, this was a pre-production aircraft, uh, first flown in 2005, and then used for several years in evaluation work. It's currently located in one of the hangars of the restoration facility. It will be there for the next few months until the new hangar is opened and we can move aircraft around. Now, the interior, the cabin interior, is configured for 24 fully equipped troops. It's a, a modest size cabin. You can get an idea of the size from the reference provided by, uh, by Brett and Ken standing there. 
Friends, it is hard enough to design an airplane to take off horizontally on a nice stretch of concrete. It is doubly hard to build one that will take off and land vertically. And then you come along and impose the idea that you want to fold this thing up and put it in a broom closet. It is just outrageous. But nevertheless, that's what the Marines wanted. They wanted this aircraft to be able to fold up to occupy minimum footprint. And so they required the wing to be attached to a pivot that could be rotated so that the wing then is parallel to the fuselage, uh, hinges on the rotors so that they could be folded up. Uh, this induces, in, uh, introduces enormous complexity. And if you have an opportunity to go inside our V-22, if you look up at the cabin, you can see where this pivot is. And the implication is that all of the services for the power plants out on the wingtip have to go through this pivot point. So you've got fuel, you've got hydraulics, you've got electrical, all going through this maze of lines. Uh, this is a really, really difficult problem. No wonder it took uh, 18 years to get everything worked out. Well, one of the requirements of the Marines that had to be able to land on ships at sea, on aircraft carriers, or on amphibious ships. I've included, and it did that successfully. But I've also included this picture of the tilt wing 142 also landing on an aircraft carrier and bringing back to my original uh, request to the, that you imagine uh, the 142 being replaced by the CV-22. It, uh, it provokes the very interesting question, what if the Air Force had stayed with the tilt wing airplane? What if the Air Force had continued to fund Vought and the development of this? Might we have had essentially the same capability for a medium tactical transport, but had it many years earlier than, than the V-22? Well, with that question, uh, that uh, to you, I will uh, reach the end of my prepared remarks. Uh, I've enjoyed presenting this journey through the R&D gallery. Uh, you've been wonderful to come here tonight to listen